Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Yes, we're here again. In my hand, I hold a poetry collection as I tend to do most days. And this one is a 2011 collection of poems called Changeling by Claire Pollard. And it is full of strangeness and folklore and bestial happenings and general spookiness. And as a consequence, I love it. But more importantly, Claire Pollard, and this is an odd thing to say about a poet, but she has a fabulous turn of phrase (laughs) and a way with words. I know you're saying those are the basics of being a poet, but you don't always get them at this level before your eyes as I see them now. So I'm going to read a poem called, I believe the pronunciation is Zena, Z-E-N-N-O-R. And if you live in Cornwall, you may have been there. I think you are allowed to go there if you don't live in Cornwall, but you know what I mean. And this is a poem essentially about the mermaid phenomenon. Now, I have long been strangely obsessed with mermaids. I can't really explain it. I guess if I was going to be completely confessional, there is a part of me that thinks that they might exist. There, I've said it. I went to an art exhibition by a Scandinavian artist called Harold Solberg, and there was a painting in that called The Mermaid, which was, I think, from the late 19th century, and it was brilliant, but not like your usual busty, curly-headed mermaid. She looked pretty tough and a bit cheeky, smiled, and the way he painted her, and he painted this picture in several versions. The moon is behind her head, giving her a sort of halo. So there's all sorts of odd sexuality, sacredness, odd things all mixed up. There you go. So I'm going to read you the first bit of Zena by uh, Claire Pollard. And I just, from knowing you this long, I know you'll love it. And I should say that It's almost journalistic in its form in that you get a couple of cases of mermaid sightings and then a focus on a particular one that happened at Zena. They crossed the partition. First the mermaid at Nunton, who slithered from netted green nightmare silence where catfish skidded whiskered over her chest her shocked eyes. The cold of the sea is ferocious, mottled skin and makes fingers thick red, and she wanted to feel the warmth of stones, but a boy cast a stone, caved her skull. Now let's just look at that. First of all, we're talking about mermaid sightings, so what a fantastic opening line. They crossed the partition and it's this partition between those who dwell in the ocean and those who dwell on land and it's obviously a dangerous partition gives us all sense of political division and and war and all that so 
It's a risk, obviously. They crossed the partition first, the mermaid at Nonton. So here's the first story I'm going to tell you. But listen to that. Who slithered from netted green nightmare silence. Oh, go, Claire. She carries on where catfish skidded, whiskered over her chest, her shocked eyes. Shocked is, I don't know if you've ever heard of shocking oysters. It means to to shell. So her eyes are open. They are unshelled, if you like, with the image of her eyelid as being a shell. But that feeling and the netted green nightmare silence, I always imagined profound silence deep down there in the sea and netted green nightmare. There's all those threats of mankind, humankind's intrusion into the depths. I'm also afraid of water, by the way. That might be one of the other fascinations I have with mermaids. That is brilliant. The cold of the sea's ferocious mottled skin and makes fingers thick red. And she wanted to feel the warmth of stones. Now, I suppose it never occurred to me that a mermaid feels the cold of the sea, that it mottles her skin and makes her fingers thick red. But maybe sometimes it is as we struggle on land with certain conditions and temperature. But the idea that it's so cold that she wanted to feel the warmth of stones, something we traditionally see as cold, cold, really hammers that home. But a boy cast a stone, caved her skull. So much for the warmth of stones she was seeking. So I think it's fine in situations like this to read a poem. When Nonton is mentioned, I feel that's an invitation to go and have a look further. So that's what I did. I think I've spoken before on these podcasts of what I see as the advent calendar approach to poems. So a word like Nonton, a place name like that, capitalised, I want to open that little door and see what the picture is behind. So I had a look And in 1830, there were some people cutting seaweed in the Outer Hebrides when they saw a creature in the form of a woman in miniature, so a small mermaid. And a boy threw a stone and hit her, and they found her dead body two days later, two miles away at this place, Nonton, which Claire Pollard mentions. And the report of the time said the lower part of the body was, and I quote, like a salmon, but without scales. And they buried this mermaid near the shore where she was found. That is the story. But Claire Pollard inhabits that story as a poet and finds details which she feels from those descriptions And she makes it a richer and more real and we feel like we're there. That's how it works for me. I'm going to carry on. Then the incident in Sheringham. It was drawn to the church's spire. The beadle yapped, mermaids can't come in here. Slammed the oak door in her face. Okay, 
the incident in Sheringham, it, and I like the use of it, it makes the mermaid sound more different, more alien. It was drawn to the church's spire. I suppose from the sea that might be the one thing that you can see of a town, that sort of arm reaching up to God that you get when you see a church's spire. The beadle, the beadle would be the guy who looked after the church, yapped, mermaids can't come in here, slammed the oak door in her face. Okay, so she's rejected and that's it. She's gone, we don't know what happens next. So I went and I had a look at this place, Opera Sheringham in Norfolk, and the mermaid dragged herself to All Saints Church when a service was taking place. And this is the story. The Beadle knew the theory that mermaids have no souls. That was his explanation for shutting her out, that mermaids have no souls. And that, whatever your belief is about souls, there's something about, but what about that half of her that's a woman? Surely that qualifies for a soul. Anyway, the Beadle shot her out, slammed the oak door in her face. So those are the stories. But Claire is giving us those as a ramp to the incident at Zena, which she wants to explore in more detail. And here it comes. But Zena was different. Beneath dark grey sky smeared with lemon radiance, as sandalings dared the edges of brown waves, a mermaid followed a man's voice, followed words he sang out, salvation, risen, love, pulled herself out and across and into the town, fathom by fathom, eel grass and blood under nails, biting brine-stung lips with concentration. That is so good. That is so good. But Zena was different, as I say, Zena is in Cornwall. Okay, beneath dark grey sky smeared with lemon radiance, that kind of yellowing you get in the, uh, the later day. As sandalings dared the edges of brown waves. Sandalings are like tiny little birds. They dared the edges of brown waves, so they're messing about by the sea, maybe looking scavenging a bit. A mermaid followed a man's voice. So this time it doesn't seem to be the church's spire. It's the sound coming from the church. And I love that. The idea of a mermaid hearing the choir singing and being drawn in. Followed words he sang out. Salvation, risen, love. Now, Salvation, risen, love are all words you'd expect to hear in a hymn, which is presumably what she was hearing. But salvation, risen and love all seem relevant to this mermaid who may be seeking salvation. She can, and I don't mean religious salvation, this man's voice is drawing her forward and maybe she can find salvation in in him risen she has risen from the sea and love she feels some love for this voice it gets better pulled herself out and across and into the town 
fathom by fathom. So she's dragging herself across the town. Fathom by fathom, I love, because that's how you measure depth of water. She has come from that world, so that's how she measures things. So we would have said, I don't know, yard by yard, but no, fathom by fathom. What about these two lines? Eelgrass and blood under nails, biting brine-stung lips with concentration. You can feel the dragging of this mermaid. Eelgrass and blood under nails. Eelgrass from her ascent through the sea, presumably. But now blood under nails because she's pulling herself along. Biting brine-stung lips with concentration. So the slight saltiness of her lips, she's having to bite the lips as she concentrates on pulling herself towards this sound. I can, I can see her there. Though her skin was the colour of sea foam and tiny crabs swung in her hair, Matthew Truella did not care, fell in love with this sea creature, each sandy inch and she'd die out of wet, but was where he belonged. So he crossed the divide, waded into his fear, to the waist, to the wincing face, until he could not feel it, and she clung to Matthew, arms around his neck, and kissed his head and throat. Beloved stranger, he entered a place of wild and alien light. Man. Okay. So I'm just going to give you a bit of background to this. Um, one of the reasons that the Zena story is well known is that there is a chair in the Zena church which has a mermaid carved on each end of it. It was probably a pew that's been reduced to a chair by um, inventive carpentry. But it does seem that, that there actually was historically, if you're looking for a date, usually if you look up this story, it says things like a long time ago, so not that helpful. But it says, when you read into this, that there was a Matthew Truella, that he was the church warden's son, and he sang in the choir. So that much of it is true. And the story says, I don't mean that the sort of mermaid story, I mean the sort of more down-to-earth version says that he left the town with a strange and ageless woman. Okay, we've all been there. So there was a Matthew Truella, it seems, and he did leave the town with a woman and he sang so that much. In fact, he was described in contemporary reports as the best singer in the village. So you can see why his voice drew her in. I'm just going to look at that bit again. Though her skin was the colour of sea foam. Just beautiful. And tiny crabs swung in her hair. I love her so much. Matthew Truella did not care. Fell in love with this sea creature. Each sandy inch. So for all that strangeness of her skin, the colour of sea foam, tiny crabs, Matthew Truella, has got, they are both heading towards each other, it seems, with no consideration of 
the impossibility of this match. He fell in love with this sea creature each sandy inch. And I guess you get more when you meet a, a mermaid. You get more of um, the inchage. It's normally hidden in um, in land dwellers behind clothes and such. But you know what you're getting with a mermaid. And she'd die out of wet. And now that, see, why is that so much better than she'd die out of water? I don't know, but I love it. And that is when poets just choose the right word. And she'd die out of wet, but was where he belonged. So if she stays where he belongs, she's going to die. So he crossed the divide. And we're straight back to that first line again. They crossed the partition. That was about mermaids coming to us. So he crossed the divide. So the poem ends with us going to the mermaid. Matthew Truella being our representative, waded into his fear. And it would be terrifying the way love often is. But this waded into his fear to the waist, to the wincing face. He's afraid the water is splashing up around him until he could not feel it. And this is a sensual moment. And she clung to Matthew, arms round his neck, and kissed his head and throat. His head and throat. It's like mermaids have got a different way of kissing. She didn't go straight for the lips. She's just finding her way around this human. And the last two lines, Beloved stranger, he entered a place of wild and alien light. Beloved stranger, she has fallen. This is love at first sight. It's not even love at first sight. It's love at first hearing. She heard his voice. She's drawn in. He is still a stranger, but he's even more a stranger to the world which he's heading towards. He entered a place of wild and alien light. And it just feels amazing. His, his passion for this, for this strange creature just draws him forward. And we can recognise that in love when a relationship just feels wrong, but we can't stop ourselves. And, but this is such an extreme example of that. This man is stepping into the sea to be with this woman. I think we see now Claire Pollard's narrative plan. Three stories, and in each one, the mermaid gets closer. So one mermaid almost reaches the shore, one almost enters a church, and finally, the last of these brave explorer mermaids make contact and actually embrace the world on the other side of the partition. One more thing about the poem Zena, that if you squint a bit when you look at it, the way the stanzas are formed, they look like the rippling surface of the sea. And I know you think I'm reading, but honestly, you can see that shimmer, that shimmering, zigzagging shape that you get on the surface of the sea is there in the, in the form of the poem. So you know how I talk about how form 
reflects content in a, in a good poem. And often I'm talking about meter and rhyme and all that. But in this case, the actual shape of the poem on the page reflects the subject matter, the surface of the sea, the surface that's going to be emerged from and then entered into. The other poem I want to talk to you about, and I don't have time to talk about another poem, but just switch me off when you get bored. I like reading Claire Pollard's poetry out loud so much. I'm going to do another one. I'll try and be brisk, but, you know, they're so good. They are so good. And this poem's called Whitby, and you can guess what's coming. Yes, it, it, it is, sort of has Dracula as its backdrop. And in fact, it begins with a, a quote from Bram Stoker's Dracula. All the goths now are cranking up the volume on this with excitement. I have a quite a hardcore following of uh, goth listeners. This is the Count himself speaking. You think, I'm not going to do the uh, East European voice. You think to baffle me, you with your pale faces all in a row like sheep in a butcher's. You shall be sorry yet, each one of you. You think you have left me without a place to rest, but I have more. And that is a, a part of the novel where they've sort of shot him out of his coffin space, as I recall, and he can't get at it. Uh, but when he says, I have more, I think he means that he rests in people, in women in particular. Stick around because it's great. It's great. It's a really good collection, Changeling by Claire Pollard. And if, you, if you're in any way a person who likes the mystical and the strange, you'll love it. Okay. Whirlpools, remember we're at the seaside, Whitby. Whirlpools of goals whip over harbour. Clouds of yellow eyes, and the stone seas fearsome, melted and roused to terrible passion. Adders slip through moors. On the promenade, lovers masticate winkles. Punch kills the baby. It's, it's a, an opening and a half, isn't it? OK, let's look at it. Whirlpools of goals whip over Harbour, you know, you get goals sort of swirling like that. Clouds of yellow eyes. And I think already we can smell a bit of Dracula on this. Obviously, Claire Pollard has, has used that opening quote to, to set up our Dracula and Tanai. But clouds of yellow eyes, we might not have noticed that or thought anything Desperately sinister about that, in that gulls do have yellow eyes, but now it's more scary. And the stone sea, stone as in cold and grey, and the stone seas fearsome, seas with an apostrophe S, so sea is, and the stone seas fearsome, melted and roused to terrible passion. So it begins the, the world of nature, the state of the sea, Stone, grey, cold, wrath, and these yellow-eyed birds whirling above it. What it gets better, it gets better. I know I keep saying it gets better, but it just gets better. Adders slip through moors. Now, 
That's fair. It's not even at the seaside. It's sort of the surrounding areas. Adders slip through moors. We, you can't see them from where we are, but we know they're out there. And, of course, snakes and slipping through. It's all very ominous and unsettling. And then it goes kind of domestic, but still keeps that unsettling nature. On the promenade, lovers masticate winkles, chew winkles. And this is a creature devouring another creature. Masticate suggests... It's, it, again, it's Dracularian. That isn't a word. Drac- Dracularian. That could be. It's now Dracularian. You've, you were there when it was coined. Isn't it lovely? You were at the birth. You're my word doula. On the promenade, lovers masticate winkles. Punch kills the baby. And that's a reference to Punch and Judy shows where one of the things that happens, they might well have edited this out. I know they used to hang Mr. Punch at the end of the Punch and Judy show. And I went to a Punch and Judy festival in Covent Garden in London where there was about 20 Punch and Judys happening. And I heard one Punch and Judy man say to another, you were doing the hanging today? So I think they, they, uh, they've had to cut some of the more horrific bits out of Punch and Judy for a modern audience. But in this story, Punch kills the baby. So all those things, the adders slip through moors, the promenades, the, the lovers on the promenade chewing away. Punch kills the baby. Images of snakes devouring death. It's all building up. We're in Whitby. There's been a quote from Dracula. Where is this going? The roses on the fortune teller's tatty hut are leached. And I've never bought a reading for fear she'd shrug. For I am good and pure, a bore. And in my room, again, writing this diary, it's prim script. Today, piano, teas, I walked, I took in air, I made small talk. So what's happened here? We've had all this sort of impending horror and there's a little trail of it as we go into this section. The roses on the fortune teller's tatty hut are leached. Now, just the use of fortune teller here, it already, it still sounds a bit creepy because fortune tellers, God bless you if there's any listening, but you are creepy. I think that's part of the job. The roses on the fortune teller's tatty hut are leached. And there's two interest. This is a real crossover of moods, I think, in this poem. Because we've just had adders slipping through moors and yellow eyes and all that. Ponch has killed the baby. The use of tatty, I think, is a suggestion that we're now going to just slip into domesticity and a bit more ordinariness, because tatty is that kind of word. But the roses on the fortune teller's tatty hotter leached, to me, suggest red roses, which are now pale. And now they are made pale by exposure to sunshine. But you can't help thinking... If you think of something red and then drained pale of the vampire sucking the blood of his victim, the vampire, of course, is also destroyed by sunshine, as are the roses on the fortune teller's tatty hot. And leeching makes us think of leeches, creatures who suck blood. Now, we're getting the voice now really coming out of the, of the speaker and I've never bought a reading, so I've never had my 
fortune told, for fear she'd shrug. So she'd be, mm. for I am good and pure, a bore. And in my room, again, writing this diary, it's prim script. So it all sounds very neat. Today, piano, teas, I walked, I took in air, I made small talk. This feels like a, as someone who's quite proper and as she suggests, I'm feeling she, a bit dull. I think, and I haven't seen this verified, I think we are in the company of Mina Murray. And Mina Murray is the woman who's engaged, at this stage of the novel, she's engaged to John Harker, who's like the main guy or the main good guy in the Dracula novel. I'm not questioning Dracula's uh, billing here. She's the woman who's engaged to him and a very lovely, nice woman who gets sort of slightly corrupted by Dracula's evil. So that's whose voice I think this is. I've never bought a reading for fear she'd shrug, for I am good and pure, a bore, and in my room again writing this diary. She writes, as you know, Dracula, as you probably know, is, is, a, is a pistolary, so it's, it's letters, so this all fits in. It's prim script today, piano tees I walked, all the things that nice people do at the seaside, as opposed to what we've heard of people masticating winkles and punch carrying out infanticide. Next section, my engagement ring tightens. Now that, again, makes me think that this is Mina Murray because she, at the point where she visits Whitby in the, the novel, she's engaged to John Harker. She does marry him later. I don't want to spoil it for you, but hey. My engagement ring tightens a noose on the gallows, yet something dark veins me. As jet veins these cliffs, black crystals brought to toughness by time's weight. When the tourists see the morning jewellery, I've watched their covetous eyes, how they gleam and a fire catches in me. Right, my engagement ring tightens a noose on the gallows. So she said that she's a bore, she writes her prim little handwriting in her diary and she takes in the air and makes small talk. But her engagement ring tightens like a noose on the gallows. So she's feeling that. She's feeling that commitment fear, it feels to me. The feeling of, oh God, I'm going to be married, I'm going to be a wife. And the noose is tightening, that engagement ring noose. Yet something dark veins me, veins me. So it shot through me as jet, jet being a, a, a black mineral, veins these cliffs. She's looking at the cliffs now in Whitby. We're with her there. In the novel, she likes to sit in the graveyard at Whitby. Black crystals brought to toughness by time's weight. And you know how... These things are squeezed and squeezed till they become crystallised or gemmed. Look, I'm not a geologist, you know what I mean? Things are squeezed and they turn into stones and diamonds and things like that. All right? So, 
Yet something dark veins me as jet veins these cliffs. There is a darkness growing in her and it seems to be growing in this place. Black crystals brought to toughness by time's weight. They have been produced. When the tourists see the morning jewellery, morning as in M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, I've watched their covetous eyes, how they gleam. So we've gone from my engagement ring tightens and noose on the gallows. So we've got the image of jewellery immediately there. Yet something dark veins me as jet veins these cliffs, black crystals brought to toughness by time's weight. We seem to be moving more towards where that, that precious stone in the engagement ring. When the tourists see the mourning jewellery, mourning jewellery I presume to do with funerals and death and memorial things. So there's death and jewellery and all that mixing together. I've watched their covetous eyes, how they gleam and a fire catches in me. So they want these, this death jewellery. In fact, I just I had a look at uh, on the internet for um, Dracula engagement rings. And there's quite a lot of what we would now call goth jewellery. A lot of it based on uh, Victorian stuff that widows wore and all that. It's a dark world out there. And a fire catches in me. So for all her primness, there's something going on in the speaker. The speaker might be Mina Murray if I'm right, but there's something going on. I'm the lighthouse lamp guiding something in. Now she's looking around here. That's what I like. We know she's in Whitby. She's seen the goals. She's seen people eating winkles. She's seen the fortune teller's hot, the punch and Judy. She looks across at um, the cliffs that, with their jet veins. She's seen the tourists looking at this spooky jewellery. And now I'm the lighthouse lamp. It's, it's like that bit in um, The Usual Suspects where whatever Kevin Spacey's character is called, Kaiser something, just looks around while he's being interrogated for to use what is there to make his story. If you haven't seen it, it's, uh, it's a good film I've just ruined. I'm the lighthouse lamp guiding something in. The bay's sand fingers strain and a prow pierces the beach and a dark beast slumps up steps to the graveyard, to the through stones flat as beds. The shuddering clouds... The white moon like a fingertip pressed up to glass. A brute bat's wings are beating at the glass. Well, it's Dracula, isn't it? It's got to be. I'm the lighthouse lamp guiding something in. What does a lighthouse guide in? It guides in a ship. And in Dracula, the ship that he's on arrives in a storm and actually comes onto the beach and a black dog jumps off it and heads toward the graveyard. I'm the lighthouse lamp guiding something in the bay's sand fingers strain. So those sort of extremities of sand going out make it look like a hand, a scary hand reaching out. And I guess they're straining to reach this presence that's arriving And a prow pierces the beach. A prow is the front of a ship. 
pierces the beach because it's got that pointy bit at the front. Oh, yeah, I can go nautical if I have to. And a dark beast slumps up steps to the graveyard to the through stones, flat as beds. It's the sort of steps that take you in. The shuddering clouds. This, for me, is perhaps one of the highlights of the book. And sometimes you read something in a poem which will, you know will stick with you forever. This is it. The white moon like a fingertip pressed up to glass. And you know when you press your finger on a window, it goes white and it's just like a smeary circle. That's what the moon looks like tonight. And of course, the fact it's a fingertip pressed up to glass, it's a metaphor. But not only does it look like a fingertip pressed up to glass, but a fingertip pressed up to glass suggests fear, looking out of a window, trying to escape, all sorts of gothic nightmarishness a brute bat's wings are beating at the glass a brute bat's wings so nobody can really feel dracula in the air and the scariest thing for me about this is that she the speaker as she says is the lighthouse lamp that guided this evil in so she's the light in all this darkness the bright innocence attracting the beast and the beast is already starting to pierce her, to darken her light and to get into her veins. And God knows, vampires, they love a vein. Anyway, now the last section, I'm, I'm, you're nearly out of it. Come on then, I invite you in. This is the woman, if you remember, who wrote in prim script in her diary and had a bit of piano and tea and made small talk. Now, evil has arrived and she says, come on then, I invite you in. Why fight my own thought? I'd roam this world too, penetrate it. Feed on me that I can feed, for I am sick of being tame. Evil and freedom are the same. Right, come on then, I invite you in. She feels this evil, it seems to me, and she has dismissed herself as a bore, too dull to even get her fortune read. But when we find out that the engagement ring is tightening like a noose on the gallows, we know there's more in there than that. She doesn't want to be the bore. She doesn't want piano and tea and small talk. She wants something darker than that, or she does now that she's steadily getting infected by this newly arrived presence. Come on then, I invite you in. Why fight my own thought? I'd roam this world to penetrate it. So no, I'm going to really let myself go here. Penetrate the world. Already there's a sexuality about it. Feed on me that I can feed. So she's really looking for some mutually beneficial, if if totally corrupt relationship. Feed on me that I can feed, for I am sick of being tame. And doesn't every nice, sweet person, I imagine, I'm not putting myself in that category, but you know those people you know, you just think, oh, they're so nice. Don't they every now and again think, I am sick of being tame? And this last 
You notice that rhymes. Feed on me that I can feed, for I am sick of being tame. Evil and freedom are the same. Evil and freedom are the same. Now, it's an interesting philosophical debate that I don't have time to go into now, but I think it means that evil is when we let that animal that dwells at our dark centre completely free. And, you know, Freud spoke of the id and the ego, and the ego sort of controls the id, and the id is our animal instinct fired by hunger and fear and sexual urges and all that stuff. And we all, you know, we all keep it all bottomed up. But she's saying evil and freedom are the same. Now, I think that is a life view that you only arrive at if you're out enjoying the seaside and Dracula arrives on a ship. That That's how you get to that place. I love this poem, though. I just think the way it creeps up on you, this thing. And I think... I think in both these poems that Claire Pollard, in this Anzena, she's used text, old newspaper reports or sort of folklore writings or Bram Stoker's Dracula. And, and she has uh, entered a place of wild and alien light, just like that man did with the mermaid. I think she goes into what we have of these stories and digs deeper and feels what it would be like to be Mina Mori, to be there in Whitby when Dracula arrives. She's not, it's not enough for her, the written word that we've got. She needs to go in. She needs to enter into that water and give us all those extra insights and details and possibilities so she, when she's there and feels that she's Mina sitting in Whitby, she feels that commitment anxiety. And when Matthew Truella goes into the waves, the, the wincing face as he sinks away, I think she feels that. I think her method is to take the facts, or if not the facts, the fiction, whatever the extant story is, and then immerse herself in it and find newness and find fresh expression and make it colourful and vivid and exciting and human and real. And as you may have guessed, I really like Claire Pollard. I really like this book, Changeling. And as ever, I recommend that you read it because there's a lot more richness and spooky stuff. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week. 